Welcome to the Queen's Bench Podcast. Today, we're joined by an esteemed figure in business law, Professor Mohammed Kimji. Presently, he serves as the Associate Dean of Academic Policy at Queen's and also holds the position of Interim Dean of Graduate Studies. In these roles, he's instrumental in shaping the JD program at Queen's Law. Additionally, Professor Kimji is honored with the Distinguished David Allgood Professorship in Business Law and leads as the Director of the Queen's Business Law Program. His consultancy prowess is sought after by top-tier law firms and governmental agencies not just in Canada, but also in the US and the UK. With distinguished tenures at institutions like Western and Dalhousie, coupled with his practice experience at Toronto's Tories LLP, Professor Kimji's impact on the legal arena is profound. We look forward to an engaging and insightful conversation ahead. Before we jump in, please be sure to check out our website at queensbench.ca and follow us on all of your favorite social media and audio platforms. Now let's get started. Tell us a little bit uh, about how you ended up at Queen's from, from where it all began. Well, that, that's a big question. So I, where it all began is uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. So that's where I was born and that's where I grew up and that's where I graduated from high school. And I could never have imagined that this is what my life would look like um, based on where I grew up and, and the circumstances in which I grew up. It, mm-hmm. um, what I can say is my, my career trajectory has been full of surprises and, and full of delight and uh, what specifically would you like to know? Well, so first of all, when when did the dreams of law begin? Did it start in Tanzania or well after high school? No. So I did law in England at the University of Bristol. And in England, you can do law straight after high school. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to do law when I was filling out my university application form. Okay. Did, did you fill out the application form while you were in Tanzania, or were you already in England at that time? No, in Tanzania. Okay. So, at least at the time, and I'm not sure if it's still like this, in England, if you wanted to go to university, there was a centralized application form uh-huh. where you chose six universities that okay. you were applying to. Okay. And so, I chose the six universities, and I ended up at the University of Bristol. Did, okay. Did you go to, to England on your own, or did you go with family or friends, or... Was it common for people to leave Tanzania to the UK? I mean, it was common in the school that I went to. So I was very fortunate. I went to the international school. Okay, okay, yeah. And so I went to school with people who were children of expats and children of diplomats. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was common for them to go to university in the US or or in England or in their own home country, wherever that would be. Yeah, makes sense. I, I had a similar experience because I was in Dubai. And when I lived in Dubai, it was very much like that, where if you went to the public school, you had less exposure to outside universities after you were done. But if you grew up in a different bubble of people who are like expats, going to private schools, international schools, there's a Canadian school, an American school, that kind of thing. And then in that bubble, it was extremely common. Almost all my classmates ended up somewhere abroad after for their university education. Was it the case that the majority of them went to university or did some of them pursue other avenues? Um, from my international school, most of the stu- most of the students, most of the graduates, ended up going to university. Okay, and yeah. that that was always your default. I I wouldn't say it was always my default. I mean, I'm actually the first person from my family to go to university. Wow! Okay. So it it wasn't kind of expected. Yeah. Of me, and I'm. I, I mean, I'll sort of explain a little bit in terms of my 
my cultural context and my community context. So I'm part of a very small minority of of uh, Muslims um, that are based in East Africa, but are th- are th- well, I'm third generation Tanzanian. So originally, my great grandparents migrated from India to Tanzania, and a community of people from India did that. Okay, yeah, uh, and so within my particular sect of Islam, we're, we're a very small community. <clears throat> and sometimes what happens in very small communities is the cultural expectation, because there's a perceived threat of survival, like our community will die out. The pressure on young people is very much to marry young, marry within, <laughs> mm. um, and have lots of kids. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the cultural environment in which I was growing up in. And so the idea of going to university um, and you know, becoming a professional of some sort, that very much was coming from the school I went to. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm just a curious guy. I'm not, I'm not one who conforms that easily. Yeah. I, okay. I like doing my own thing, and and so it, it 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 makes sense now in hindsight that I would be attracted to something different, and wanting to to leave where I was born and and try and make a life somewhere else. Okay. Um, we, so, go ahead. Um, so you decided to go to university, but like, was there a particular reason why you tr- decided to pursue law? Or was it just that you, like, was it more like hearing about it? Or did you have an intrinsic reason? That's a really good question. I mean, at the, at the time that I decided to go to university and to apply, I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know enough. Not very many of us do because you don't know enough. That's exactly right. That's right, and, and so and and you know, some some of your listeners might be able to relate to this. If you come from a, there's something about Indian culture and Indian parents. There are only there there are only some <laughs> legitimate areas of study. Yeah, and and there's definitely a ranking. There's a hierarchy with yeah. with medicine at the top. Yeah. That's like, the apex predator of careers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, you know, if, you know, whereas something like dramas is, is not acceptable. You, yeah. you can't do something like that. Yeah. So I, I, kind, of, I kind of had limited choices. Uh, and, it's the exact same in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, yeah. And sadly, I also had limited abilities mm-hmm. when, it, when it came <laughs> to science and, and maths. And, and so law was sort of a, oh, I can do this maybe. <laughs> Grow, <laughs> growing up, were you, we asked Professor Pratt this too, were you an avid reader? Were you hyper curious and whatnot? Or did you sort of develop this interest in not just law, but some of the fundamental skills that accompany it like reading later on? I always like reading fiction. Okay. okay. I always like reading fiction. And uh, I wouldn't say, like, I was always a curious person, but at the time I decided to do law, before deciding to apply for law school, I wasn't particularly curious about law. Yeah. So I really didn't know that much. Like, I'd, I'd never heard the word tort before. Yeah. 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 Did you, gr- back in Tanzania, did you play sports growing up? Did you play soccer or anything like that? I played tennis competitively. You're kidding me. No, I'm not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Un- until how old? Oh, it started to fall apart at puberty. So as a teenager, I wasn't as diligent in terms of practicing and okay. I became interested in other things. But I-, I was actually 12 and under Tanzanian champion. Wow. Wow. Like That's- number one? <laughs> No, I, I won a tournament. Okay. <laughs> there was always this, I had this rival who was always ranked higher than me. Did he, he go on? Good. So good. Did, build character. <laughs> did you have dreams of playing in the ATP? No, they died when I was really young. But as a young kid even, you had no dreams. 
Oh no no! Of course I did. Okay. Of course I did. I, that would have been nice. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's tough for a dream to die at twelve years old. Good grief. Well, it really takes. Like I would play. Ever since I was five, I would play. I'm not kidding. Four or five hours a day. Yeah. Wow. And that's that. That just became very difficult to sustain. Yeah. I was I was very much the same. Uh, I I played at U Ottawa, in fact, uh, for about a year and a half before I started just training on my <coughs> excuse me on my own. Tennis? Yes. Oh, and I had no idea. Un- unfortunately, COVID unraveled my my aspirations, but uh, because I simply got too old, I was the the kids who I was competing against were for the institution I wanted to play at were sixteen and seventeen years old, and they were kicking my butt. So yeah, I realized I I better make a career change, but uh, I certainly sympathize with with the rigor associated with it, but. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, sorry, you were you were asking me about my rival and what what happened to him, and he ended up getting a, an NCAA scholarship. Wow! In the U.S., yeah. So, wow. Well, so that's both big. of you did very well. <laughs> well, uh, him in a different way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> did Did he go on to play professionally? Uh, very briefly. Okay. Very briefly. Yeah. I mean, that that's a hard gig as well. Yeah. No yeah. kidding. No kidding. Okay. okay. So let's like I just want to get back on track. So you're in England. You're studying law. Uh, can you just walk us through what happens after that and how you ended up here in the journey? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And so I, I get to England and I'm, you know, fresh out of high school, you know, doing first year prophecy and all this stuff and not knowing very much about even what was possible with a law degree. And so when you don't know what is possible, in a way that's easier mm-hmm. because you're not really agonizing about your choices. You're kind of falling into what comes your way. And so I fell into this idea that I would become a transactional corporate lawyer and I would go through the recruit, try and get a summer job after second year. And and in England, they have an equivalent of articling called a training contract. Okay. And so I thought I would try that. And I, I wasn't particularly successful because I couldn't navigate uh, the immigration rules. So I at the time, I had a Tanzanian passport. And so not a work permit in England. Yeah. And the employers would tell me, oh, you need a work permit for us to make you an offer. Wow. Okay. And the immigration office would tell me, you need an offer for us to give you a work permit. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I, I really wasn't sure how to deal with that. And, and uh, I just decided my sister was already in Canada. I have an older sister. And I thought, okay, well, Canada looks easier in terms of navig- navigating the immigration, so I'm going to move to Canada. And that, so I decided to ca- come to Canada. Okay, so it was an immigration yeah. incentive more than anything, it sounds like. Well, that was certainly a big part yeah. of it. That was a, a catalyst, for sure. Okay. Was, yeah. was Canada the only option, or did you consider other, other places like Australia or the States or elsewhere? I didn't. I, you know, in my head, Canada was the only option, and it was also... I mean, when you're young, you're you're quite willing to take leaps of faith and yeah. do yeah. things you you don't really know anything about. I, yeah. I didn't know what it would what the move would turn out like. Yeah, yeah. But when you have a family member who's around, it, it comforts you, right? You think, Definitely. well, if it doesn't all work out, at least I I can sleep on her floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so that was the idea. Did she pursue law as well? No, she didn't. Okay. No, she didn't. Okay. Yeah. And then, so so describe how. Well, first of all, the the rigor associated with law school in england it's a it's a five-year program is it no it's a three-year program like like canada's is 
and they have articling just the same. Everything's pretty much standard. You yeah, just... I mean, my information you know, might be out of date because this is, you know, we're talking okay. 20 plus years ago now. <laughs> so uh, at the time, at least, you, you did your three-year law degree. And then their equivalent to a bar exam is a one-year course. Okay. And then after that, you do a two-year training contract. Is that equivalent to articling? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's a longer apprenticeship. Yeah. And professional exam period that but we you, have in Canada. But you save the the time you spend in undergrad. So that's right. Yeah. yeah. Probably convenient if nothing else. And then, so how did you get to Tories? Was Tories the first place you worked at afterwards? Yes. And and that I think is one of my my life's miracles, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I show up in Canada and you know as a for, like I'm a foreign trained lawyer. I mean that that's what I am, even though I just have a law degree. Yeah. But that's how I'm treated by the law societies here. And so I have to apply for an assessment, which I do. I apply for an assessment that where the law societies tell me what I need to do to be able to be called to the bar in Ontario. And so they assessed me one and a half years of law school. And so I needed a law school in Ontario to let me do this one and a half years. Yeah. And at the time, there were only six law schools in Ontario. And about a week before Labor Day weekend, five of them had not given me an offer. Wow. You know, they'd rejected me. So there was one left. And that was the University of Windsor. And thankfully, you know, a week before Labor Day, they sent me an offer letter and said I could do wow. it. And so I, I lived in Windsor for a couple of years doing that. And it That's incredible. Yeah. And so and I, they treated me really well. I thought they were very, very nice about it. They essentially treated me like I was a transfer student. Okay. That had come in after one L. So I was in two L. That's how they treated me. Yeah. And that worked out super well because I got to participate in the the very structured recruit. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't get a summer job. But I ended up getting an Austin job. And at the time, the firms hired more, more three L's, if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I ended up getting really good grades. And that, that's, I, I think, why Tories offered <laughs> me a job. And I, I was very thrilled. I was pinching myself. Like, I thought yeah. this was a really great thing to happen. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I was, I was also thinking along, that, that makes a lot more sense. Because outside of the formal recruit for a foreign trained lawyer, I've heard it's like super difficult to break into, especially that niche. Um, so it makes sense that you went through some sort of formal recruit to get there. Yes, it, it is very, very difficult. I mean, at least at the entry level. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. So you mentioned that they were taking more three L's instead of two L's back then. Do you know when that changed? I don't remember the year precisely, but at some point during my teaching career, they started doing OCIs yeah. and it, you know, the, the sort of summer recruit became the bigger recruit. And is, is the thought process behind that let's get the students earlier on so that we could develop them better for when they do start articling? Is that the thought process? That might be partly it. But my understanding is it's mainly they want the best students as soon as possible. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a market, right? It's a, it's a competition to get the best students that are available. And if one firm begins to recruit earlier, <laughs> yeah. then they all have to. Yeah. That's just kind of how... That's my understanding of it. It's really about the firms trying to get the best students as soon as possible. Yeah. And then how long were you at Tories before you transitioned to academia? That's really another a miracle, I think. I mean, so, <laughs> so during my articles, I 
you know, it was very different to what I imagined it to be. And I'm not sure I really imagined it to be anything. I had no idea what working as a low-level transactional lawyer would be like. And I, I remember doing it and starting it and thinking to myself, okay, this is great and really interesting and the people are really smart. And, but I, I don't think I want my life to look like this forever. Yeah, I kind of decided that and I thought, oh, it'd be nice to work at a university. And, you know, I'd seen, you know, academics teach me, they wrote papers, they wrote books. Oh, isn't that a civilized way to live? Like that, that, that seems really cool. (laughs) Uh, And so that means I'm going to have to go to graduate school. I'm probably going to have to do a PhD, but let me at least start with graduate school. So, you know, after articling, I asked for a leave of absence to go do an LLM for one year. And firms are generally willing to give you a one-year leave of absence. They're not going to give you a five-year leave of absence yeah. to do a PhD, but they'll, they'll give you a one-year leave of absence to do a mm-hmm. master's. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going back to England, to the London School of Economics. And again, kind of not really knowing what it is I needed to do to position myself to be an academic. So now the good thing about England is the universities tend to give every student what's known as a personal tutor. Oh, wow. So you're assigned a faculty member who's your personal tutor, who you can go to, ask questions. You you have a relationship with someone going in. Yeah. And so I went to my personal tutor and I, I asked her, I said, look, you know, I want to be an academic like you. That I want to be you. So <laughs> tell, me what I, tell me what I need to do. Because I have no idea. And I'd, I'll never forget her answer. Her answer was, publish, publish, publish. Yeah. And that was her answer. And I said, okay, that's great. So I'm going to have to write something and publish it, but I have no idea what to write about. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally didn't. I had no topic when I was in England starting this master's program. And she, she gave me some really good advice. She said to me, look, you know, there are all these courses here that are seminar courses. This is before the ad drop period is over go to the first class of all the ones you can and see if you get inspired by something. And so that's what I did. I decided to go to all these classes to see if, if something would inspire me, you know, give me a topic to write about. That and is I, clever. Yeah, that, yeah, it was really good advice. It was, it was brilliant. And so I ended up discovering through this one class called Interest in Securities that the property law regime, as it applied to financial assets, wasn't so robust. And sort of changes in how financial assets were held, you know, in terms of how they were intermediated Mm -hmm. and held electronically through brokers and so on, um, we needed to rethink how property law applied to those assets. Yeah. Mm And so I thought, okay, that's, that seems interesting enough. I, and, you know, I was a young, confident guy at the time. I thought, oh, I, can, I can come up with something <laughs> clever and fix this problem. <laughs> and so you know, I spent a couple of nights thinking about some conceptual solution to this problem. And I went to see the, the teacher of the course. And I said, look, I've got this idea for a paper, for a thesis. You know, here's an outline. And... Uh, you know, she sort of looked at me. She was sort of suspicious when I first walked in and started talking really confidently. But then she read my outline and she said, okay, I'll supervise you. Yeah. And and so that's how that, that relationship began. And that was another great relationship I had. And I ended up writing a, a thesis that I published in a reasonably good journal uh, in England, the Journal of Business Law. And so I did that. And then I went back to Tories to be a first-year associate. Okay. 
And while I was a first year associate, Dalhousie offered me a job. Wow. Uh, as a tenure track academic at the law school. Wow. And I couldn't say no. Yeah. You know, I couldn't say no because I thought, oh, you know, if I say no here, I'll eventually, if I want to do this, I'll, I'll have to do a PhD. I may not get anything anyway, even after doing the PhD. Yeah. I'm likely never going to leave practice and do a PhD because <laughs> it's, it's just not a sensible thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I took off to Halifax, Nova Scotia but to be an academic. Before we go out east, did you go back to England because you missed it? Like, was there anything very appealing to you about the living situation in England, or was it just the most convenient of the options you had available to you? That's a really good question. Why did I go back to England? And I, I'm not entirely sure I, I really thought about it that much. I think part of it was, you know, because I made this decision during articling, I was a little bit late in the game. You know, I didn't apply to graduate yeah. school early. Yeah. And so England was familiar. Okay. And so I thought, well, let me do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the mentor that you had, would you say you have maintained a relationship with her or was that sort of in the past more now than than anything else? Um, for a little while over the years. I mean, like that was a really good like that one paper I wrote, that thesis, like it, it gave me a lot in life. It it really, really did. I mean <laughs> really paid off. It really paid off. I mean, yeah. I, so like the the Bank of England had set up a wow. committee to think about legislation in this area. They hired me as a research assistant. The Law Commission of England and Wales consulted me on this issue. Wow. So you were getting a lot of consulting opportunities from it? A little bit, yeah. Like a lot of, yeah, some attention. Yeah, people were, people were interested in what it's, I had to say. It yeah. sounds like you, yeah. you were right to be cocky. It sounds like you've solved the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I, I hadn't. Uh, I had it. What's interesting is my particular way of looking at it didn't become the accepted way. Okay. It was just a way. Okay. Yeah, it hadn't become the accepted way. It, it never became the accepted way. So, and, and that's enough. okay. Uh, but no, I was just, that one article just gave me a lot of... Uh, a lot of credibility I don't even think I deserved at the time. But uh, yeah, and it led to my, my academic job, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. So you would generally encourage students to pursue publication? If you want to be an academic, you absolutely have to. And I, I highly recommend doing it early on. Uh, it's, it's very common these days for schools in Canada and even England to insist on a PhD at law schools. But in America, they don't. Yeah. Like American law schools don't insist on even a master's degree. They really care about research potential. And you, you, that's a really reliable way to demonstrate research potential is, is through publication. Okay. Out east, you're out east, you're working at Dalhousie. How long are you there and what are you doing specifically? What are you teaching? Yes, yeah, so at Dalhousie. I mean, that, that, that's a very fun, fun time in my life. So I, I get to Dalhousie and um, I'll just tell a funny story. Can I tell a funny story about Dalhousie yeah, and, and, and maritime culture? It was all new to me, but it was also charming. Uh, and so, you know, at this at this time in my life, I don't own very much. And because I'm so excited about getting an offer, I don't negotiate the offer, right? So Dalhousie offered me a job. I just accepted it. I, I, didn't, nego <laughs> I didn't negotiate it. And so they'd given me, uh, in, in terms of my offer, they offered to cover 80% of my moving expenses. And so I accepted that, and I, but I didn't own very much. And so you know, I moved out there, 
And I went to the finance office to submit my receipts and my claim. And, and the finance manager looks it over and she looks at me and she goes, that's it? And I said, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't own very much stuff. So, uh, and she, she says, look, I'm going to give you 100%. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was brilliant a really great start really really positive and uh that's mar- that's maritime culture for you yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine that happening in ontario ever well <laughs> you can't get more lucky if if you're on a plane than getting seated beside a, a someone from out east because they'll they'll become your best friend in less than an hour so right. that's certainly true um what what were you teaching at dalhousie so at dalhousie i was teaching business associations sale of goods, secured transactions, and I was the, the coach for the corporate securities law moot. So that, that, that was my first year, yeah. So these were all subjects you were well acquainted with because of your time in practice at Tories? I mean, I, I, well acquainted is a stretch. Okay. Right, well acquainted is a stretch. I mean, if you've never taught a course before, you're really just surviving week to week. Okay. Think about it this way. Like if you're preparing a two-hour class for the first time, it's going to take you at least 10 hours. Okay. And then the skills associated with with, with teaching. I was curious to hear what Pratt said about this as well. He said he wasn't necessarily the most comfortable public speaker naturally, which was surprising to me because he he comes across that way in class. Would you say you always were a natural public speaker or, or was it something you had to learn? It was something I probably should have thought about more. Uh, I, I'm an introvert. Like I, I'm very much an introvert. And I academia appealed to me more because I wanted to write and think about problems. Yeah. The teaching was an afterthought. And that, that's no dis- I love my students. That's no disrespect to my students. <laughs> but going in, the teaching was very much an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember going into my first business associations class, I was so nervous that I thought I was going to die. I really did. I thought I was going to die because it's the idea of going up there and talking in front of 60 people. And that was the, that was the cap at Dalhousie, 60 people in business associations. Uh, I mean, I didn't last more than five minutes in that first class. Like it, I literally just gave them the syllabus, said, welcome, and, and that was it. You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was... Anyway, as, as you can see, I, I made it. I did. I did not die. I'm here. Was yeah, it just yeah. the exposure that got you comfortable with it? Did you did you do lessons anywhere, or was it just something that came up like naturally, eventually? No, I mean, what happened was I decided that I needed to create some persona, like I I needed to treat it like acting. Yeah. Right. I was giving a performance. Yeah. And that's what helped me get through it. Like, it, this wasn't me doing it. I was going in and I was delivering a performance. That is so cool. That yeah, is a good way to think about it. That's really, really cool. You still engage with many practitioners, don't you? Like, I imagine you kept a pretty good network in Toronto with both your days working there. And I imagine you're doing still some consulting potentially. I don't do any consulting. Like, okay. I don't have a side gig or, okay. or anything okay. like that. I still have good relationships um, at Tories and especially with our alumni. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've taught now, this is my 20th year of teaching. I mean, I, I have former students who are now partners and so on. That's and so cool. it, it, you know, like, and yeah, I, I have good relationships with them. To the extent that I interact with practice, I've been lucky enough to be asked to be retained as an expert witness in litigation. Cool. 
And that's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's only happened three times. Yeah. Uh, but all by a U.S. law firm. Wow. Uh, in litigation, like in Delaware and New York and um, Colorado. That's incredible. Uh, the other thing I'm curious about, because you've been at so many different schools in Canada and even internationally, how would you compare the educational experience? Is there anything that stands out about, maybe I'll point more to the international side of things. Is there anything that stands out from how they do law school in England versus how they do it here? That's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, and I have kind of a, a couple of things I want to say in response to this. One is I went to law school at a very different time to to you guys. I mean, this is yeah. you know, over two decades ago, <laughs> yeah. right? So I, I went to law school at a very different time. But to give you an idea, you know, when I went to university in England, university was free for English people. Okay. There wow. was no tuition. <clears throat> Yeah. And the government even gave most people a grant to go to university. So you were paid to go to university. Wow. So it was a, it's a different time. Yeah. Um, it was also a different time in terms of what students expected. Yeah. You know, so another example I'll give you is, so I wrote exams. They were all closed book. And I would get, and no student would get any feedback ever. Yeah. You just weren't allowed to see your exam or even question your mark. Wow, yeah. okay. So it's just, it's just a it's different a culture. Shift. Yeah, it's a different culture, different time. You know, my reading lists on a week-to-week basis had textbook extracts, <laughs> casebook extracts, actual cases, articles from journals, and law reform reports if applicable. And, you know, my the expectation was I would just read as much as I possibly <laughs> could to prepare. So, so what you mean to say is we've gone a little bit soft. Well, I, I, I don't know if soft is, is the right way of putting it. I think students have more expectations now, but that, that actually doesn't surprise me given how much you guys have to pay for education. Yeah. You know, it strikes me as a very reasonable yeah. exchange. Like I'm paying more, which means I demand more in terms of accountability and service and so on. Yeah. Okay. And so that that's another point I'll make, just to give you sort of a comparison. So my, at Queen's, the tuition fee is about 20000 a year, Canadian. Yeah. So I, I visited Yale Law School, and the tuition fee at, at Yale Law School is about 70000 US. Wow. And I've also visited the University of Valencia in Spain. At the time I visited it, the tuition fee was 300 euros. Wow. Wow. So, you know, and, and, and you really see it when you're there because, you know, in terms of what Yale offers. Yeah. Uh, the events, the food at the events. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it and like the career uh, development office at Yale Law School has a dedicated person to help students find public service opportunities. Wow. Whereas by contrast, the University of Valencia doesn't even have a career development office. <laughs> okay. So it, it, that kind of the economic reality based on tuition fee and how it's related to tuition fee, I, I've been able to see. And, and that's been interesting. So you would say you think you more or less get what you pay for? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I also, it's also made me think that maybe we need more variety in terms of like a bespoke. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, like I, I, you know, I, I, you know, students. It's, it's actually students that should be demanding this. You know, like I'm willing to pay for X, Y, and Z. Like it's like when you buy a car and you yeah. choose your <laughs> options. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think maybe that might be a good model because I, I don't see the, the trajectory being sustainable in terms of how much things cost. Yeah, definitely across the board. I would say, yeah. You, you detail how it's changed tremendously. Obviously, technology has developed considerably even in the past five years most recently with with ai you just wrote an article for queens uh to that effect how do you see ai influencing we'll start first with with academia and then we'll 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 talk a little bit about practice later yeah so ai i mean that's that's a really big thing that everybody's thinking about right now in terms of how it's going to change the world, you know, and people are saying lots of things, and I, I'm more of a cautious person. I, I I can't predict the future; nobody can. Yeah. But in terms of sort of how my take on it is, I I'm one of those people that is very receptive to change, and I I believe innovation is a good thing. Yeah. You know, we need constant innovation. That that should be happening, and I see this as as an example of innovation that we should embrace as a law school. Uh, and so I think the article, I, I didn't write the article. I think I, I was just interviewed for an article okay. in, in the Queen's Law Reports. And and so I made the point that, you know, as a law school, you know, we've taken the position that, you know, we don't have a default rule. In fact, our default rule is permissive. You know, students can use AI for learning purposes, and we don't have a problem with that. Like, we're not going to discourage them from doing that. Yeah. Uh, and that belief comes from this idea that students should be literate in using this technology. Yeah. Uh, where we have sort of adopted a mandatory rule is you obviously can't use the work of generative AI <laughs> yeah. and present it as your own yeah. because that's the equivalent of plagiarism and we, we certainly don't want to allow that. No, of course not. And so, in, in practice, have you heard anything about the approach that they're taking with AI in practice? I have. I've read a little bit and I've spoken to people and, and different firms appear to be doing different things. Some appear to be discouraging uh, yeah. the use of AI. Others are trying to develop their own customized a AI platforms that they use. And so it really ra it ranges between those two extremes. What firms need to worry about and what I, I encourage my students to worry about is, is not just the, the academic integrity piece, and that, that of course is important, but there's also a quality control element. Yeah. Right, I mean, generative AI, as we know, is is not very good with dealing with hypothetical fact situations. It also tends to make stuff up. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. for anyone using it, it's really, really important to verify the the product using primary source material. Yeah. And so lawyers still need to have the same skills that we've always been teaching them, at least partly to verify the accuracy and quality of what AI will generate. Yeah. You, you would think generally, though, you're sort of in favor of it. It almost relates to, to the conversation we had off camera, where if one firm does it, the other sort of have to, because certainly if a practice is advantageous. Presumably, as AI develops, it will offer a considerable advantage where essentially it becomes inevitable. Would you would you agree with that? My educated guess would be yes. I mean, what I suspect will happen is generative AI will become more and more reliable. Yeah. It'll get better as, you know, the iPhone has gotten better over the years, right? So it'll, it'll just get better. It'll get more reliable. Definitely, I think, yeah. And so what 
people will be able to do things faster and cheaper, right? So you'll be able to do more at less time <laughs> yeah. and of sufficiently good quality. Yeah. And I, and I don't see that as threatening. I see that as a positive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even even for this this podcast, it's been tremendously useful. You could speak more to that, but yeah, I mean, you can get all kinds of AI tools. I mean, it's just been like in the past couple of years, really. Like, it went from hardly any to all kinds, and I think we're very much in a in an infant stage where everybody has their own bespoke AI model, charging a monthly fee. So if you're yeah. going to use it like day in day out, I'm noticing like you're you're paying for six or seven services. Each of them are twenty dollars a month. It adds up, but I think it's only a matter of time before you get some big company that comes in and offers like a a, a broader kind of like service model with different AI tools. And like I mean, Adobe Creative Cloud now is incorporating it. So whereas previously I was editing audio with a tool and editing the video with another tool and and doing the color correction with an AI and whatnot, now it's like it's all in creative cloud so i think it's just going to become everywhere and uh, microsoft's going to add it to word so there you go you can't even avoid it at, uh, in the future i don't think you make a good point though too it's it's strikingly affordable i mean westlaw and lexus aren't aren't particularly cheap you yeah, know that's true so a 30 dollar per month subscription which is going to increase efficiency who knows how many fold yeah might be more than worth it you know so yeah. And that's what I fear for from my perspective is um, is like I'm very blessed to have ex exposure to this older in life, like when I'm older. So at least I know how to write stuff on my own and I know how to read legal cases on my own so I can fact check it, like you said. But I worry about future generations and if they grow up with, with it hardly ever making a mistake, right? They're just going to learn to trust it. And just like we forget how to do division, because you have yeah. calculators. I think a lot, like it is, it is something that people need to be mindful of going forward that kids might not learn how to write full paragraphs on their own very well. It, in fact, we, we have seen the unfortunate effect of that in a small way already. For the past hundred years, IQ had been consistently going up. And it was last year that an article came out that it's, it was the first year that they recorded it actually took a little dip. Wow, I didn't even so, know that. So, so the fear is, if if we have so many useful tools, yeah, maybe the skills required to do basic things just will never be learned, and maybe it could, in the long run, be to our detriment, not benefit. But certainly in the short term, I could see it increasing efficiency tremendously. Yeah, just I agree. It's also still in its infancy. I I understand. I think AI in the next even five years will more than double in terms of its effect. You know. Yeah. So, which which leads to the point, do you think that ultimately lawyers ought to be concerned for, for their jobs? Do you think it's going to replace lawyers? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think there will always be a need for human judgment. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where lawyers can come in. And, and I think what I suspect will happen is lawyers who can use AI to generate efficiencies will be more valuable than lawyers who cannot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you ever think of, and I think about this myself all the time, because it seems that in some ways we've made huge strides in education and in other ways we're still stuck in this model where everything has to be evaluated and, and in a three-hour exam. And I, I'm finding, for example, this year that a lot of my professors are giving us take-home exams recognizing that, you know, you might not be feeling well that day or you might be off or maybe you're just not the kind of person that 
can analyze a whole fact pattern in an hour and a half, right? And sometimes that pays off in work. Like, you know, if you work in a different setting, you might have a day to look at an issue and maybe you'll come up with a better problem, a better solution. And so do, do, you, have, do, you, do you have any ideas about alternative testing methodologies or ways that in the future you can kind of mitigate that kind of stuff other than t- a take-home exam? That's a very, very difficult question <laughs> yeah. and, and, a, and a good question. You know, how do you assess people in a reliable way? Yeah. And it really depends on what you think the purpose of assessments is. And that's a key question that yeah. no teacher should ever forget. Like, what's the purpose of assessments? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one obvious purpose is so people get feedback on how to improve. That's one obvious purpose of assessments. The other purpose, though, and it is an important purpose, is to signal to employers who are above average performers, who are average performers, and who are below average performers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, And sort of those two things almost don't work well together. Because to be reliable as a signal to employers, you kind of need everyone to do the same thing. You can't give everyone different methods of assessment because right. then it becomes difficult to compare. Right. Yeah. You can't compare as reliably as if you can compare very reliably if you give everyone a three-hour exam. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I don't think no firm will ever say this, but I suspect one reason why they like to hire out of 1L is because everybody's taking the same courses. Yeah. It, it becomes much easier to compare. You know, once people are taking different courses, they're writing papers, they're writing, you know, they're doing assignments and quizzes and so on. It just becomes really difficult for an employer to compare. Yeah, as a lot of sense actually. As the associate dean then of of academic policy, is any part of your job maintaining the integrity of the curves here at Queens, like making sure they're as meaningful now as they might have been when everything was standardized, when there was no alternative option to the three hour exam, when there was no open book exam well one of our fundamental principles is academic freedom and we we these days encourage instructors to employ multiple methods of assessment we definitely encourage it because we believe that has pedagogical value yeah Um, the observation i was making a second ago was really about how employers respond to that (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and i suspect uh, they'll never say it Mm -hmm. this is just me i suspect partly part of the reason why (laughs) they began shifting to recruiting from 1l is because that's really reliable if 1l looks similar across every law school yeah so as the associate dean you do play a role now in shaping the direction of of queens particularly as it pertains to to business here, like you mentioned, but to, to business law, the pursuit of business law. But would you say that your experiences in the past, both at other schools and even as a student, have informed the way you want to shape life as a Queen's Law student and, and the direction that Queen's Law takes? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a really good question. And 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 you, we never got to this, but you had asked me, you know, why did I become an associate yep. dean? And I mean, the simple answer is, you know, my my dean at the time, Mark Walters, asked me, and, <laughs> and, and so I, I said yes. And um, I've really enjoyed it so far. I mean, I'm I'm only in my second year of it, and you get to make a a positive contribution in a different way. So one initiative that I'm working on as the associate dean of academic policies, I want to establish 
a first-generation alumni match program. Okay. Right, so I That'd mentioned really earlier cool. that I, I was the first person from my family to go to university. And, and you know, from that lived experience, I know that you know, as a first-generation student, you don't have you don't really have a network. Yeah. You don't have advice and you don't have information. That's right. Uh, and so the idea of the alumni match program, the first generation alumni match program would be to give that to our first generation students. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's a really meaningful yeah. kind of initiative to be working on. And I get to work with the CDO yeah. uh, and our director of uh, indigenous initiatives and EDII on something like that, which is, which is a lot of fun and really meaningful. Um, and then at the graduate, as as interim associate dean, graduate studies, what I've observed, I, I've only been doing this for three months, and and you know I'm one of those people that can't help but try and make things better. <laughs> and so, what I've observed is graduate students have different goals, right? There 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 are different types of graduate students. You know, some are doing an LLM because they see it as an enhancement to their professional qualifications. Yeah. Others are doing it because they're foreign trade lawyers and, and they've come to Canada and they want to establish a network and connections and they want some familiarity with Canadian law and so on. And then there are others who want to pursue a research career. Yeah. And they're all completely different. They have different needs. And so I'm thinking about how to restructure our graduate programs so that we we meet the needs of these three demographics as opposed to having we right now almost treat our graduate students as if they all want to be academics yeah. <laughs> and, and and they don't that, that's not what they all want yeah and so why not give them what they want yeah uh, and help them achieve their goals and that's actually the most meaningful thing i think you're you're helping people achieve their goals by changing uh the structure of an organization yeah and i really enjoy that so so you've talked about what you like about it what's what's the hardest part about being an associate dean What's the hardest part about being an associate dean? I mean, I it hasn't been that hard for me so far. <laughs> it it really hasn't. I, I That's find, a good thing. And of course, you know, you're a sounding board for many people. Yeah. Right? Like people will complain to you. They'll tell you you haven't done things properly. Yeah. They'll they'll tell you you're not giving enough attention <laughs> yeah. to their specific issue. I, but I find it doesn't really phase me, and I I I find I just roll with the punches, and and uh, I have really thick skin. I'm I'm old. I I don't really care what people think of me anymore. <laughs> and I just try and be reasonable and fair and principled. And as long as I'm okay with with how I'm doing things, I find it's it's fine. Have yeah, you have you awesome. always been thick thick skinned, or is that something you sort of grew into as well? That's hard to say objectively. I mean, I think as a young person, you're you're naturally more inclined to care about you know being cool or whatever, right? Like <laughs> yeah. you, you care. It does uh, seem like you were always very self assured. Maybe it's it's hard to say. Like it, maybe, yeah. Because uh, yeah, when you're a kid, you you just are how you are, and that's normal. Yeah, you, you don't really think about it. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I also I also think it's on a it's on a individual basis. Like everybody. Cares less when they're older, but some people inherently care more always. So it's like it's a gradient, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I certainly know people who I've grown up with who who still care deeply. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in terms of your role as associate dean, academic policy again. 
Do you inform about Queen's admissions at all? Um, I'm not that involved with our uh, admissions team in terms of the operations, but I certainly, I mean, that's sort of one of the teams yeah. I'm interested in, for sure. Okay, and, and how would you say, again, I remember reading an LSAC article back when I was doing the LSAT, my, well, after I had written the LSAT. And at the time, it was reported that on average, people taking the LSAT had studied for significantly more hours and had generally achieved higher scores than otherwise would have been predicted. Have you seen that high standard that was established during COVID persist? That's a really good question. And that's uh, COVID was really, really interesting in terms of what happened. Yeah. And I don't think it was just COVID. I, I think part of it was also just what was going on socially at the time with the murder of George Floyd yeah. and the protests. And there just bec- there developed a more of an interest in law and law schools and how it could that's uh, a great point. make society better. I didn't even think of that, but that's brilliant. Yeah. Even I suppose it gave many people who, who were forced to, to work from home uh, or otherwise a chance to reconsider what, what they wanted to do. And it sort of speaks again to the, the career transition point again. Uh, it, it sort of ga- allowed people to take a step back and, and reconsider what they wanted to do. That's exactly right. And, and I'm sure you read in the article that um, in 2021, a record number of people took the LSAT. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the scores were really high yeah. at law schools across North America. Yeah. In terms of their admission standards. Yeah. Uh, and, and we experienced this too. But now that they're back to historical normal levels. <laughs> so you don't see a huge discrepancy year to year? No. It was, so it was sort of like a blip, you would say? It was a blip, at least so far. Yes, it, it, it seems that way. Interesting. But 2021 was only two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of your, your career, when you take a step back and look at that, you spoke a little bit about at the micro level, what you enjoyed about each thing, what would you say were were your career highlights? And it doesn't sound like you've had a whole lot of lowlights, but if you want to throw one of those in there, uh, by all means. Oh, career highlights. That's that's so, there are so many that it's it's really hard. Like I mentioned the business law program and the success of our students in, in 2021. That is huge. Yeah, and, and just the little the little small victories along the way. I always, I always enjoy a small victory. Yeah. You have to. Um, so career highlights, I mean, that's a good question. Yes, the example I'll give is um, the first time I was asked to be an expert witness in, in litigation. So this was by a New York law firm with the litigation in Delaware. And um, often litigation matters will settle, right? There'll, there'll never be a trial. But, but with this one, there was a trial. The whole experience was... It was really funny and, and really great. Uh, and so when I, I was deposed, right? So there was a deposition. And so I right. was grilled for about five hours wow. by a group of opposing counsel, which I just wasn't ready for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you, you know this because you've been told it, but I've never been a litigator. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that the entire five hours would be 
all about undermining my credibility and making me look dumb. That's <laughs> <laughs> so I, I found that experience really shocking. Yeah. And I was and I I felt really bad afterwards that I that I wasn't prepared and I hadn't done a good job. But but anyway, I got to redeem myself at the trial. Uh, <laughs> and the, the other thing I realized at the trial was people behave better when a judge is present. Yeah. They're not as nasty. Interesting. Uh, so that was really interesting. So it was a really funny moment during the the cross-examination where the lawyer was giving me this complicated hypothetical and telling me if my and asking me if my analysis would change it with his new hypothetical. Uh, and just the way that his hypothetical had been set out, it just wasn't possible for that to happen. I, I don't want to give you the details. It's too yeah. boring. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm sort of trying to follow along, you know, sitting on the stand and realizing that, oh yeah, this hypothetical is not even possible. Like it can't happen this way. And so I kept saying to in my answer to the question, your question doesn't make any sense. And I'm not going to answer it. Yeah. You know, so as a witness, I was you know, saying, I'm not going to answer the question, <laughs> basically. And, and eventually I got, it, it, we kept going back and forth like this. And eventually I just turned around and I said to the judge, Your Honor, this question doesn't make any sense. Do I have to answer it? And what I didn't realize was, as a witness, you're not allowed to speak to the judge. Oh. You're not allowed. In, I, in Canada, too? I don't know in Canada. I, I've never been a litigator. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea what the rules of court are. Yeah. Um, so uh, the judge like looked really sort of fri <laughs> frightened, like, oh, the witness is talking to me. And so the judge looked at the lawyer, you know, my lawyer, who had retained me, who immediately stood up and said, objection. <laughs> Which in itself is quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then the judge was also very funny and said, oh, let me guess. This is, a question. this is an objection based on a question that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and everybody laughed and you know and, and then the best part happened is he looked at the cross examiner and he said look i know where i know where you're trying to get the witness to go but even if you could get him there it won't help you so i'm gonna <laughs> wow. allow the objection <laughs> and I thought that was like a that was like a tv show moment yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. really really good i enjoyed that yeah you you spoke at the start about the the sort of the cultural dynamic and in terms of expectations of potential career paths that that you could consider, um, obviously you've had a very successful career. A, do you still have contacts back in Tanzania? Do you still have family there? And do you know what their their thoughts are about your your career as a lawyer? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, so um, you know, my father had uh, fourteen siblings. Wow. And my mother, six. Okay. And so I have a lot of aunts, uncles, and cousins. Wow, yeah. Lots and lots of them. And, and we're sort of all over the world now, but definitely some in Tanzania still. Um, I would say, I mean, you'd have to ask, you know, my, ex my, my extended family themselves what they think. <laughs> uh, but I would guess that they're a little bit surprised and they're not entirely sure what what this is about really <laughs> yeah so yeah where where did most of your family end up going you said many of them went around the world did did any of the rest of them come to canada or was there a preferred location i wouldn't say there was a preferred location uh so in canada i definitely have cousins my sister is here my nephews are here i have some in dubai interesting some wow. in england some in uganda some in kenya wow so do you still, do you, do you get to travel at all? Well, I would say I traveled more before I had children. Yeah. 
and, and so you know and i had children you know and the pandemic sort of killed travel for yeah. a bit and I haven't, uh, that, that hasn't revived for me at least. It, yeah. The it, travel. It's a great segue detail. <laughs> well, so what are, what are some of your hobbies? What, what do you like to do in your free time? What do I like to do in my free time? I mean, that's, that's changed over the years, depending on my life stage. But right now I would say I like to play tennis still a lot. Uh, I'm not as good as I used to be, <laughs> but I, I enjoy it. Like it's, it's a lot of fun. Like, I mm-hmm. love doing it. And, uh, I like cooking. Okay. A lot. Traditional Tanzanian food or everything? Are you are you an expert in French cuisine? What do you cook? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at anything. I would <laughs> say I'm an expert at anything. So um so over the years my my repertoire has expanded and I've been a little bit whimsical. Like I guess that's where I I get to express my whimsical side as, oh, I'll, I'll cook eggs today. Yeah. You know, and so, so over the years, like, you know, I went through this period where I was making Sichuan food a lot. Wow. For whatever reason. Like, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and I still have somewhat of a Sichuanese pantry <laughs> with, with, the, with the stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, so last night I made, you know, peposo, which is a, an Italian beef stew you know so it just varies a lot but i enjoy doing it and i I especially enjoy doing it for my kids yeah like i'm a big believer in uh nutrition and they should be getting certain things and uh, you know i'll make their school lunches you know and so on yeah so so you're not afraid to experiment you'll try pretty much everything i personally yes and that but that's another thing where you know with kids it, it changes right because they tend to not like change no they tend not to want to experiment. And yeah. so, you know, I've become more like a line cook. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, where I really just try and do the same thing all the <laughs> yeah. time because I, I really just want them to eat. I, I would be remiss not to ask, because you're a tennis guy, do you, but in, in the Djokovic-Nadal-Federer debate, do you fall on one side or do you just recognize great tennis and, and leave it at that? Oh, that's hard. I mean, that's hard. I mean, I, I don't actually watch that much tennis okay. anymore. I used to as a kid. Where it was uh, Borg, McEnroe, and Connors. Okay. And I was a Jimmy Connors guy. Okay. So. Do you have a preferred court? Do you prefer hard court, grass court, clay court? Now that I'm a middle-aged man, I prefer clay court. <laughs> okay. Softer on the knees. Softer on the knees. Absolutely. <laughs> is, would you say fitness is generally a part of your daily routine? Yes, as much as possible. I mean, if I'm not playing tennis, then I, I like to go to the gym. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you play tennis weekly, like frequently? In the summers I try to, yeah. Okay. In the summers I try to. I mean I don't I'm not I don't have a membership at a club yeah. with a bubble. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I it's it's very it's very much a summer thing for me. Yeah. I, I was encouraged in my OCIs recently because fitness is a big part of how I deal with stress even. Um and I was encouraged many of the lawyers I spoke to uh essentially reassured me that they still do find time to to engage with that and and hearing that coming from you too who i i know you're incredibly busy uh it is reassuring that you're still able to do some of the things that you like uh even in your professional career you have to prioritize it though yeah like you have to sort of allocate time to it uh what you'll find when you as you sort of progress in your career and and have more being asked of you um, is uh, you really need a good uh, calendar on your phone. Yeah. A very yeah. reliable one. I'm learning that this yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. Would would you say that there is 
considerably better work-life balance in your current career than there was as a practitioner? Yes, and that's by definition. I mean, yeah. you know, academia, one of the sort of real appeals of academia, once you really understand what it is, is that, you know, other than your teaching and meeting schedule, your research work can be done whenever you want it to be done. Yeah. You know, and that that's a real that facilitates a more of a work-life balance, whereas private practice is very much client-driven and, yeah. and they dictate the schedule <laughs> yeah. of things. Yeah. And yeah, that's just how it is. Like you, yeah. you have to deal with that. I uh I can see you're wearing the Taylor Swift shirt. Uh and you you were telling us a little bit about that you've been known as a Swifty. Where did that start? How did that come about? And is it true? It is absolutely true. <laughs> it, you know, I, I'm a Swifty. Yeah, it's it's true. Um, so how did that begin? So Taylor Swift, I didn't really know much about her until like she released a couple of albums in 2020 that were folky. Yeah. That were folky. And she collaborated with Bon Iver on the first one, which I believe was called Folklore. Uh and Bon Iver is the kind of stuff I would listen to, you yeah. know, sad boy indie. <laughs> that, okay. That's really what, what I listened to. And I, I just thought it was interesting that she was collaborating with Justin Vernon. I thought that was interesting. And so I listened to the song. Oh, the <laughs> I remember listening to that for the first time and thinking, this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, 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 I listened to the whole album, Folklore, and I thought, I thought it, was, it was really quite good. And, and then you were bit by the bug. So I, I discovered Taylor Swift during that folk yeah. period in 2020. So I, I didn't even know at the time that she began as a Nashville yeah. country singer-songwriter. Like I... And from Pennsylvania, no less. Like, I, I didn't know any of this. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that makes her more interesting. Yeah. That, that she could make these transitions that are quite significant and do them all quite well. Do you like country music? I don't particularly, but I, I do enjoy her older her stuff country now music. as well. <laughs> and I, I'm not entirely sure when the country phase ended. Like, did it end with Red? Is that when it ended? Sort of. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. So granted... She, you're certainly more familiar with her than I am now, certainly. So I feel very underqualified here. <laughs> Just in terms of, so I enjoy the music, but I, I also find her intellectually quite interesting. And she's done something that I didn't think was possible in this day and age, right? Like music right now is, is very fragmented. Mm -hmm. You know, access to music is, is really easy and cheap. So people listen to different things. Yeah, right. Um, you know, whereas when I was a kid, you know, I'd go over to a friend's house with a tape that I'd made myself and I'd say, oh, listen to this. It's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, we'd sit in my friend's room and, and lis listen to this together. Like, that's yeah. how it worked. And, you know, music was a sense of making connections with people and building relationships, which which I think we've lost through uh, streaming and online music where everyone's just on their headphones listening to music by themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas Taylor Swift is, is really a way of bonding with people, <laughs> which I find incredible. Like in, yeah. in England, there are these club nights called Swift Again that I'd love to go to. Like, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit far, unfortunately. But so at these nightclub, like these club nights, people will go and the DJ will only play Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's hilarious. And they're always sold out. Well, and her, her fan base recently has grown even bigger. Uh, I, I'm a big football fan. 
and and she's recently started dating Travis Kelsey. So reasonable minds can disagree on if she's making it better or taking away from the game, but <laughs> because you're watching the broadcast and half the time, honest to goodness, it's, I think they count about 25 shots during a game where it's, it's just her. It's not even on the game. So her, her reach is incredibly expansive. It's striking. That's absolutely right. And and so, you know, when I first discovered how big a deal she was after listening to her music, that that was something that I wanted to understand. Like what did it what is it about her? Yeah. Uh but I, I she just has something. Like, you know, <laughs> when she's talking, I've never seen her in person, but if I'm watching an interview, if she is speaking, I have to listen. And if she, if she is smiling, I smile back. But that's how it is. Like it, she, she has that, and I'm clearly not the only one. She has that effect on. No, not at all. Far from it. Sounds like I need to pay more attention. To her. <laughs> Once For, you start, you won't uh, be able to stop. <laughs> it's like golf. <laughs> um, so for anyone basically who's made it this far, we'll 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 give them uh, an opportunity here. How how do you take your coffee for any keeners in your property class right now? Oh, I take my coffee with nothing added. Okay. Pure. And and are you a, a coffee addict or is it is there something better that, that they could bring for you? No, coffee is is my thing. <laughs> I, I, I need one to begin my day. Okay. Good, good. I it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. You were a terrific guest. Uh and and I hope we could have you back soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think it's really amazing all the stuff that our students do, including podcasts like this. I mean, it's it really is quite incredible. And you you add so much uh, to the sense of community here by by doing things like this. So so thank you guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Terrific.